0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, and we're just going to look at the first four, four verses today. We're going to look at the chapter the rest of the chapter in the next two weeks. I wonder if some of you have been watching uh, the documentary that's been being uh, recorded by uh, ESPN is airing this uh, documentary called The Last Dance. And uh, it's named after when uh, the coach, Phil Jackson, uh, his last year as the coach of the Chicago Bulls when they did their sixth championship run when he handed out the playbooks of the sixth year, it was called The Last Dance. He knew this was going to be their last dance. And this documentary chronicles, I mean, it goes into Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen and Dennis Rodman and Steve Kerr. And and um, it's a lot more than just this, the, the last year. It also shows you a lot of the other championship runs as well. And it also Chronologues when Michael Jordan tried to make it as a professional baseball player. One of my big regrets is that he came to Greenville, South Carolina, and I could have seen him play when he played for the Birmingham Barons AA baseball. And I didn't go, and I had the opportunity. And uh, he actually drove in 50 runs as a minor league baseball player, which is pretty amazing for a guy over 30 years old to jump into baseball in the double A and to do that. He only hit 202, but he hit above 200. Anyway, so this one story that they talk about in the uh, documentary is when Michael Jordan went off to play baseball. Scotty Pippen and Tony Kukok had to kind of carry the team and they led them into the playoffs in 1994. It was game three of the playoffs and the score was tied with only like two seconds left in the game, and Michael and Phil Jackson had called a timeout, and he set up a play, and he wanted Scottie Pippen to throw the inbounds pass to Tony Kukok to take the last shot. And Scottie Pippen was insulted that he thought the offense should revolve around him, and he took it as an insult. And so he refused to go into the game. And so Phil had to go over to him and say, Scottie, are you in or out? And Pippin says, I'm out. And so somebody else had to go in. They threw the pass to Tony Kukoc, and lo and behold, he hit the shot. But all chaos erupted as they go down into the locker room. And the team has witnessed something that never happens in sports, where somebody would quit like that. And so Bill Cartwright, who was the center of the team, made a speech. And in tears, with tears coming down his face, he said, I can't believe you quit on us, Scotty. And Scotty Pippen began to cry as well as he realized how badly what a mistake he had he had made in letting his team down. Well, we're a team too. We are team shady grove. And when one part of the body says I'm out, and says I'm no longer gonna be part of the faith. It hurts. It affects the rest of us. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this sermon. This is all one big sermon. There had been a couple um, people that had basically defected from the faith. There had been a couple of departures. And others were thinking about quitting as they um, they were lacking endurance. And you can pick this up as this whole passage here is about running this race and the people are getting tired, uh, these believers, because of the context was starting to, to, to be uh, a context of persecution. And so the writer is mentioning these things in the sermon, like you've become dull, dull in listening. You've become sluggish. You've become lazy and lethargic, and you're drifting away and forsaking the fellowship of believers, and not taking heed, not paying attention. Um, And all of these terms should really get our attention because he was saying, you have a need of endurance. And so the writer gives them 18 examples of faith in Hebrews 11. 18 different people. And he shows that they ran well. And now he moves into chapter 12, and he moves from examples to exhortations. And the writer is really good at including himself. I like that. There are 15 let us commands in Hebrews. And it's not, you know, the charge just to you. It's let us. He's he's exhorting himself as well. And this chapter 12 actually bookends with therefore let us. It begins with two of those, and it ends with two of those. And there's 15 in the book. So these, are, these let us's are worth underlining, okay? So that's what we're going to look at today is a couple of these let us exhortations and then the consider him, which is actually the imperative of the passage. So let's give attention to God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I have a question for you. If you remember the beginning of the service, I mentioned seven times this word perfect, being perfected is, is used. So my question to you is, have the saints who've gone before us, are they perfect? Yes or no? because I already said that they, the spirits of the just made perfect from, from Hebrews uh, 12, uh, later in the chapter, it mentions that. But look back at Hebrews 11, verse 40. There's something really fascinating here that we got to wrestle with. Because the therefore, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, what do you got to do? You got to figure out what it's there for. And it ties into Hebrews 11. And he's all these 18 different people that are mentioned, all these heroes of faith, they ran well. And it says in verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God has promised something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What? So here we are told they're not yet made perfect yet we got the spirits of the just made perfect. So how can these both be true? Here's my answer. Is that the believers that have gone before us are in this, what we say in theology, is the intermediate state. And their spirits are instantly made perfect and they go straight into heaven while their bodies, though you still united to Christ, remain in the graves till the resurrection. And so they're, they're, they're perfect, however, They haven't experienced the perfections of heaven yet. And they haven't experienced the reuniting with their bodies yet. And all of that is still to come. And the way I've kind of described this before is is a wedding analogy. When you go to a a nice wedding and then you go to the reception, sometimes they'll have this, you are able to to enjoy the hors d'oeuvres and you're standing around and you're enjoying some beverages and you're enjoying the hors d'oeuvres. But you're, you're not allowed to go into the sit-down supper of the wedding feast until when? You have to wait for the bride to come and the groom. And you have to wait for the rest of the wedding party and for them to be introduced And when they finally come and lead in, then we go and we sit down together and we enjoy the meal together. Well, the idea here is that the fullness of what God has for us in heaven, this idea of being perfect, doesn't happen until we all finish the race. And so the imagery here is that they're now waiting for us. They finished the race. They're in the Colosseum and they're up in the stands and they finished and they're waiting for us now to finish. Now I don't know if they're necessarily looking down on us and watching us run this race. I think it's more of they are examples to us and we're able to see them because we see their example in Hebrews 11 and we see how well they ran and they are the great cloud of witnesses of which we are to find our identity now and to root ourselves is to follow these people just as Kobe Bryant imitated Michael Jordan his whole life, and he wanted to imitate his moves. Well, we imitate their moves. We see what they did by faith, and they finish the race, and we say, all right, there's the mark, there's the time of which they finished, and I'm gonna do my best to finish like that. And that is our, our goal. And so that's the context of what we're dealing with, is that the writer is presenting this idea of a race, and the word for race that's used here is the word agon. It's where we get the word, the English word that comes from that is agony. And then in verse 4, we say, it says, In your struggle against sin, that's the Greek word agonizomai, where we get the English word agony. And so you have this idea that there's something really difficult going on here. And then verse 11, which we'll get to more next week of Hebrews 12, that the discipline that God has us all go through Because he loves us. This discipline yields, not at first, because it's painful, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained, trained by it. And that's where we get the word uh, gymnazo, where we get the word gymnasium. And so the idea here is the writer is presenting the idea of the pentathlon in the Olympics. That's what most of the commentators think. And apparently, this was the culminate. this was the big event. Climax of the Olympics um, in that culture would have been the pentathlon. And there was different events. Here they were, running, jumping, discus, javelin. And then the last event was a boxing type of wrestling event, which the combatants wore a hard leather on their hands and they would bloody their opponent. We would call that... Uh, fight league, you know, UFC or MMA kind of stuff. That was the the events that they were uh, before them. And the writer is saying, "Look, you haven't resisted yet to shedding your blood, but you're in a difficult struggle. It is a, an an agony. This is not an easy race. When you start to run more than a sprint, you quickly realize that this is hard work. And we get into the Christian life, and we realize." We bargained for a cross, is what Jim Elliott says. You know, we, we got in more than we were uh, imagining. And so we are to run well now this race that is before us. And so I think for us, this is really important because in the midst of coronavirus, it's hard to see people that are running really well because we're not really around each other. And so the examples that we need to go back to are how about the 18 in Hebrews 11 and then looking ultimately to Jesus. We have to keep the race before us. Um, and so it might be, you might be thinking, well, there's no pace setters right now. Well, there are. They're right here in Hebrews 11 and 12. And there's some things that we have to do if we're gonna run well. And so the writer lays those out for us. This race involves, you know, we've got this cloud of witnesses that are watching us, and we're given these two let us uh, commands. They're actually, uh, yeah, subjunctive in the Greek, but that's not going to mean anything to most of you. But these let us um, phrases for us are first of all to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and then let us run with Perseverance the race before, so let's consider those things. First of all, we kinda know that if you're gonna run a race, you wanna get as light as possible. I mean, I like to cycle, and um, you know, as I've gotten more into it, you want a lighter bike. You wanna get as light as possible. And Kim has just said to me, "Why don't you just lose a few pounds? And you, you've saved yourself a lot of headache, you know? Because here's the reality: the difference between a, you know, what the difference between a twenty-pound bike and a fifteen-pound bike is? It's a, it's about five thousand dollars. Five pound, yeah. It's a, every pound is about a thousand dollars. So you want to save yourself five grand? How about just losing five on your body, and you'll you'd be fine. But." 15 pound bike is a very expensive bike. Now, I'm not saying I need a 15 pound bike. Don't, don't worry, honey. <laughs> not saying that. The idea here is that these runners that would run in the Olympics, they actually stripped down completely, they ran in the buff. They didn't have anything on because they got as light as possible. And so we kind of know, okay, if you're going to go out and run a race, you don't leave the ankle weights on your ankles if you're going to play basketball. You know, if you're going to go in the batter's box as a professional baseball player, you take the donut off the bat before you get up there. You know, you don't swing with the big donut on your bat, right? We know certain that this makes sense. So as we run the Christian life, we have to lay aside the things that hinder us and for each of us that's going to look a little differently and in the fracture of the fall of Adam into sin when he failed to take dominion because he was at his core being very passive and here he's letting Eve talk to the serpent he's right there he's not protecting he's not providing he should have just given the big stomp on the head of the the serpent but he didn't he was spiritually lazy and not leading And then we have Eve who listened to the serpent and then we are given the, in the fall now, she is told that her desire is going to be for her husband. And the idea is you're going to want to take over. You're going to want to usurp. You're going to want to dominate. So on the one hand, we see the fracture of the fall as kind of like both sides. There's this element where people struggle more with being lazy and lustful and really into pleasure and into Adam and his passivity. But on the other hand, you have people that are more into dominating. I don't want to just take dominion; I want to dominate. And others say, I don't want. I'll just do the manana. I don't want any dominion. And you have the extremes, the fracture, the fall. And so, how these this passage is going to affect you in throwing off every weight is going to look really different depending on where you're shaking out. And, and some of that has to do with even the coronavirus. Some people's I talk to some people, and man, they're like, I'm working harder than I've ever worked. And other people got way too much time on their hands. And so the throwing off the weights right now are going to look a little different. And so are you getting involved in too many things that are just eating up your affections? You know, one of the ways that we can just easily like you know, you want to add some weight to your life, just get a fantasy football team, you know, or maybe get two, you know. I mean, you, you, it's a good way to waste your life. Just throw it away. Just, you know, go into the, I mean, it, it, it's a big waste of time because it becomes all-consuming. Maybe it's, you're getting too, too into the, uh, the news networks and you're watching all these different things and you're thinking more and more, you know, all you're thinking about is the kingdom of D.C., and, and the politics of D.C., and the reality is we are observers more than we are participants. How are we really going to affect any change related to Michael Flynn? And yet some people are just consumed by that. Well, are there things that are ensnaring you, making you not run so well? Maybe you're getting consumed on Netflix or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram, but then others think, well, man, I can't stand... I look down on those people that do that because there's stuff to be done. We got to get it done right now. And they're so busy cleaning everything that they got to clean the dust off their Bibles because their, their way of looking at life is how much they've accomplished and they feel good when they go to bed at night by how much of their to-do list they've done with their achievements. And neither of those are going to help you run well. So how do you throw off those weights and the sins that literally the idea is they strangle you. And if we give ourselves over to sin more and more, we become hardened and strangled and entangled. And you can't run if your shoes are tied together. That's just not going to work. John Piper has a very helpful uh, comment on this passage. He says, as a boy, I was mightily helped by having My categories changed in the way I live my life. I commend it to you young people especially. Don't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, and your habits. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? As a parent, we always hear it. What's wrong with it? Especially because, what's the next thing we always hear? So-and-so's parents let them do it. So, what's wrong with it? He says, ask, that's not a good question. The, The question is, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? Does it help me run this agon, this race that I have been called to, this Christian life? That's a better question to ask ourselves. And so are we throwing off the things that hinder and then the big stiff jab of the devil is his bitterness that he would love to get you ensnared with bitterness and uppercuts of anger and wrath and jealousy, fornication, adultery, pornography, sexual immorality, throwing off the habit of meeting together with other Christians, and then our priorities just begin to change drastically. And we're not running the race at all. We're actually hiding. And the Christians here, instead of doing the, the, the Christian life of running, they were, they were hiding. And so um, I think for us as, as Christians... I think as Americans, that this is, this is a hard text if we're honest because we live for the good life and we always want to avoid pain at all costs. My friend and I were joking about the song by Carly Simon and the song is from 1974 was, I don't have time for the pain. I haven't got time for the p- pain. And so I looked up the lyrics to that song. You probably remember the song. And this is, ha- the song actually says, all those crazy nights when I cried myself to sleep, now melodrama never makes me weep anymore because I haven't got time for the pain. I haven't got room for the pain. I haven't need for the pain, not since I've known you. And then the second verse is, you showed me how, how to leave myself behind, how to turn down the noise in my mind. Now I haven't got time for the pain. I haven't got room for the pain. I haven't the need for the pain, not since I've known you. So the idea is that Carly has found the love of her life, probably James Taylor, because she was married to him. But, but that only lasted nine years because I think the pain came back. <laughs> I think she had a, a, a warped view of reality. She's thinking, if I found the love of my life, then there won't be any more pain. And I think that's a lot of how a lot of people think about the Christian life. Since I found Jesus, I shouldn't, things, hard things shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve it. I can't believe this. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? And if you put Carly's song into spiritual categories, it sounds a lot like a health and wealth gospel. Now that I've met Jesus, the Lord of my life, I shouldn't have pain anymore. I don't have time for the pain. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying just the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Jesus' life was pain, and it ended with pain. It ended with a cross, and now we're to follow him. And so if you think that Jesus delivers you from pain and suffering, you would be wrong and you would be right. You would be wrong if you thought that was true of this life and that this is your best life now, but you would be right if you believe that that's true in the world to come, the world that we're looking forward to, and that we are in the midst of an agon, a race, so that we can get there and actually experience that rest. So how do we do that? We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And the idea here of fixing our eyes is to be so fixed upon it that everything else pales. And we're to consider him, and the idea is to consider him closely and carefully. So how are we gonna get there? Well, let's fix our eyes on Jesus for a few minutes this morning. He is called here the founder and perfecter of our faith or the author and perfecter of our faith. So the question is, is Jesus just another runner like the 18 other runners in the previous chapter? since he's now you know, lifted up as the last runner of this race. But think about it like this. Jesus is the author of our faith, and that word can be referred to as the leader, the pioneer, the originator, the founder, the first cause. You see, the heroes of faith in chapter 11, they inspire you and you are moved by them by their example and they wait for you to finish the race. But to Jesus, we fix our eyes as he is the one who caused us to actually believe. He's the author, the first cause of our faith. He's the one who birthed us. He birthed faith in us. And he is the one that all the other runners were looking to. They were looking through the shadows and the types and and were even told by Moses he suffered the reproach of Christ. He suffered, they're, they're looking to Jesus. So the one who makes possible the successful completion of something, that's the idea of the one who, he's the perfecter, he's the one who actually brings it to completion. He's going to do that. And so in Hebrews 11, we have examples of faith, but in Hebrews 12, we have the author of our faith. Jesus was the one behind their faith, and he's the author of our faith as well as theirs. And so Jesus, as he ran this race, one of the things that we're told a bunch of times in Hebrews is that Jesus suffered. So listen to the, just a couple of these verses, because if you think about it, if Jesus ran the race, and this is what his race looked like. What, what should it be like for us? Hebrews 2.10, we already read this verse in the service, said it was fitting for that he, by whom, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And again, in, in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus was always perfect, but he grew in that perfection as he matured and into adulthood. And as he matured in his walk and dependence upon his father, he suffered as he went. So if Jesus was perfected through suffering, how are we going to be perfected? Through suffering, And we're going to look into detail of that next week of what that discipline looks like. But we see what he did for us. And that's verses uh, 2 and 3. He endured the opposition of sinners, such hostility against himself. And we're told that he endured the cross. And if you think about this, Jesus knew what the scripture said about him. He knew all those things were about him. So he knows about Psalm 22 and he knows about Psalm 69 and he knows about Isaiah 53 and he knows about Isaiah 50. He knows what was going to happen to him because Psalm 22 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. For dogs accompany me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments over them and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus knew that was gonna be him. And the reason he's wrestling, you wanna talk about Jesus' race. What was the hardest part of the peak of the climb? And I think it's in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's pleading and drops of blood are coming out of his head as he says his soul is sorrowful even unto death. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows all this. He knows Psalm 69. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. It's all before you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I look for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And Isaiah 50 says about the suffering servant who is Jesus, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces for he was despised and we esteemed him not. So when it says he endured the cross, he knew what was coming to him and he went anyway. And we'll see why in just a second. Thomas Brooks, Puritan writer says, that we need to meditate upon what a sea of blood, a sea of wrath, of sin, sorrow, and misery did the Lord Jesus wade through for your internal and eternal good. Christ did not plead, the cross is too heavy for me to bear. This wrath is too great for me to lie under this cup, which has in all the ingredients of divine displeasure. It's too bitter for me to sup of. How much more to drink the very dregs of it? He didn't say that, did he? Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it like this. He says, No one can picture it. If I had a thought in my heart concerning the sufferings of Christ, it should excoriate my lips ere I uttered it. The agonies of Jesus were like the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, heated seven times hotter than any than ever human suffering was heated before. Every vein was a road for the hot feet of pain to travel in. Every nerve a sting in the harp of agony that thrilled with the disconcordant wail of hell. All the agonies that the damned themselves can endure were thrust into the soul of Christ. He was a target for the arrows of the Almighty, arrows dipped in the poison of our sin. All the billows of the Eternal dashed upon this rock of our salvation." He must be bruised, trodden, crushed, destroyed. His soul must be exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And he says, I must pause. I cannot describe it. I cannot creep over it, and you can too. The rocks rent when Jesus died. Our hearts must be of harder marble than the rocks themselves if they do not feel. The temple rent its gorgeous veil of tapestry, and will not ye be mourners too? The sun itself had one big tear in its own burning eye, which quenched its light. And shall we not weep, we for whom the Savior died? Shall we not feel the agony of heart that He thus has endured for us? You see, the reality is Jesus bore the cross till the cross bore Him. And He bore, he bore it. There's no sorrow like Jesus' sorrow. And there's no endurance like his endurance. How did he do it then? Well, the answer is coming next. He despised the shame. Now, when you think about I've never understood this. I gotta be honest. I've been a Christian for a little while now. I've got some gray hairs. I've never understood this. I always wonder, he despised the shame. What does that mean? Well, think about it in a different light. In a number of languages, the equivalent of to despise is to think that something has no value it's to reckon something as being worthless to make light means to despise this is our biggest problem our biggest problem is that our sins and our shame we don't make light of them we they they rule us they consume us we are terrified by our own shame i mean i had a situation recently where i just went on a, a on a bike ride and my uh Cable broke and I got two gears left, the last two, 11 and 22. Well, how are you going to climb hills in 11 and 22? And I'm 10 miles out. So there were three hills that I actually didn't make it and I had to walk. And as you're walking and there's other cyclists passing you, what do you think I wanted to loudly proclaim? It's the bike it's the bike, it's not me, it's not me. And that's just something as silly as biking of the shame of having to walk up a hill. Well, how about the the shame of like just confessing our sin? You see, we actually need that, but for so often our shame, it rules us. And that's why we find ourselves hiding from God instead of finding our, our hiding place in God. I had a friend talking to this week, and he was telling me that he had kind of always looked down on the opioid crisis. Didn't understand it. Like, what, what is the deal with this opioid crisis? Well, he had back surgery. And they put him on opioids for 15 days. And he said, coming off of those meds that he... He said his body all of a sudden had taken root to these meds. And it was hard. It was a fight. I appreciate him telling me that. He said he now looks at the crisis totally different, you see. Shame is something that that ends up ruling in our life, right? But Jesus did just the opposite. He actually went public with all of our shame, all of our sins upon him. He's naked on a cross with all of our sins being nailed upon him. And he makes light of that, meaning he had something else that more ruled him that was so governed his life that he was able to finish this race and take all our shame, all our sin, all of it on himself and go to the cross to pay for our sin so that we could be set free and forgiven. How could he do that? Well, the answer is in the next phrase, is why he did it. Because of the joy set before him, because of the joy that he knew would be his, so think about this. This is from Tim Keller. I think this is helpful. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he, raced, he ran the race, he endured. Well, what was it? Well, you say it was a crown. I mean, it was like glory. He had, he had glory. It was God. He had God. It was a relationship with the Father. He had a relationship with the Father, though, all before. Why would he have come down here then? What joy did he not already have? Do you know what the answer is? The only possible thing that could have brought Jesus down here The only thing he didn't have before was you, was me, was us. The joy that was set before him was us. So he says, Keller says, let me put it like this. We're his Rachel. He loved us so much that he made light of the cross and the shame. Do you remember it says that Jacob loved Rachel so much that seven years seemed like a few days, Jesus Christ loved us so much that the cross was something he was able to take. It was Jesus Christ making you his joy, and we're called the apple of his eye. A couple places in the scriptures. If you see Jesus Christ making you his joy, making you, in a sense, his Rachel, and that being the passion of his life to get us, to have us, he had everything else. He had the Father, he had the glory, he had the crown, he had the authority of the universe. The only thing he didn't have was us. If he loved you like that and if you were his joy, then he'll, then he'll become your joy to the degree you just screw this down into the heart, to your heart through adoration and worship. You see, that's what love is. You see, if he really loved me like that, that melts our hearts to love him in return. So he says, if I am the joy set before you, O Lord Jesus, then you're the joy set before me. You see, that helps us run. And where is Jesus now? We're told he's at God's right hand, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. There are six references to Jesus in this epistle as being seated or sitting down. You see, the contrast is the priests were always standing because their, their work was never done because there was always more need for more sacrifices. But by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by him. It is finished. Jesus sat down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. You see, sitting is the, is the posture of rest, but the right hand is the position of honor. And the purpose of the book of Hebrews, we are told in Hebrews 8, where it just tells you the whole point of the epistle. The point is this. Here's the cliff notes. Here's the summary. What I'm saying is this. What we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So if you're looking to this temple on earth, that's, that's the... That's the man-made thing. That's the copy. But the real thing's in heaven, and that's where Jesus is now. And he's at the right hand of God in the position of honor and in the position of rest because he's made atonement for our sins by taking that upon us. And so the question then is for us, what difference does that make? And the answer is it helps us run well. This gives us strength as we look to Jesus We are told that we have need of endurance with this book. And here we are told to to run with endurance, the race marked out for us by fixing our eyes on Jesus and considering him going outside the camp, bear the reproach he endured. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's book in Prince Caspian where Lucy has been looking for Aslan. She finally sees him in the moonlight and she says, oh, Aslan, You're much bigger. And he says, no, you're getting older. And he says, each year you will find me getting bigger. Well, is Jesus getting bigger for you? You see, as we grow in the Christian life and we're warned against all of these other things, we see Jesus is better, better than all that the world has to offer. And this whole book of Hebrews is the better book. It's a better sacrifice, better covenant. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. It's a better blood that speaks of better blood than the blood of Abel, whose blood cried out for condemnation, and this blood cries out for mercy. Is he getting bigger as you see his love for you, that he would make you the apple of his eye? There is no easy button in this life. We can't just go bink and hit the easy button. We are called to press on in this race. We don't know how much longer we won't be able to worship together. And even when we begin to worship together, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like it was before for a long time. And we need to prepare ourselves now with some thick skin and, and love for one another that this is not going to be easy. This is going to be an agon. And we've got to continue to run this race, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the one who began this faith in us, and you have promised that you who began a good work will complete it, that you will conform us to the image of Christ. May we yield to you. Help us to put sin to death. And Father, we pray that we would magnify Jesus with our lives. Help us to run well with the difficulties and the struggles the things that you've called us to. We pray that our hearts will be tender. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.